Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Celebrations Nakamura. Why am I so happy? Why could I be so happy? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because my book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to buy. Hooray! Forget all that and pre-ordering. Forget all that. You can actually buy it. You can buy it all over the world through the wonders of the internet. You can pay in a wide range of currencies and all you have to do is go to our website which is livinghistorytv.com. Livinghistorytv.com. You know it makes sense. Buy today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're doing Black Military History 1418. Uh, What's it about, Gary? Well, this is uh, this is our recognition of Black History Month in the UK, Pete. It's uh, that's October, isn't throughout it? the month of October. It's uh, uh, it's been something that's been around quite some time since I think nineteen eighty seven, and this is our contribution towards that. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Now, we want to emphasise before we start that we're not experts on 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 this topic. Uh, uh, perhaps that's a sign of something, uh, but we, we, we've tried our best and we're, we're just going to present uh, some pieces about the various countries and nationalities involved and, and have a look at some individuals that, 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 that have, have come to our attention. Uh, that's what we're going to try and do. Uh, uh, is the idea of black recruitment new, would you say, in, in, to the British, Gary? No, I think, um, you know, we, we're concentrating on 1418, but before 1914, there, there was a tradition of recruiting locally. Uh, into the British forces. In terms of uh, the empire and, and garrisoning the empire, the largest single contribution was the Indians, for example. So, so the idea is you go to a country, you, you conquer it, and then you recruit in that country and get an extra force, which then helps hold that country, but also can provide an offensive capability to move on to the next country, uh, uh, especially in a place like India, where there are fighting, there are areas uh, with, with uh, divisions uh, which can be exploited, divide and conquer. So you use the local forces to help swell your own forces. Yeah, and it wasn't just the army. The, the Navy had, uh, for example, at the Battle of Trafalgar, there were 187 sailors from the Caribbean, 28 from Africa and 23 from India aboard the ships in Nelson's fleet. So it, it wasn't just in terms of garrisoning the, em- garrisoning the empire. It was 
a, a method for getting good uh, people into your forces. And by 1914, you know, it was a considerable available manpower to the British. And the, the Indian Army was the second largest volunteer army in the world at that time. Well, the, the Indians are one. Now, we've, been, we've talked before about how we keep missing out the Indian contribution. We, we, we always reference it, but we've not really talked about it. And this is, we're still going to do uh, t- a couple of podcasts on the Indians at Gallipoli. We're going to do uh, something on the Indians on the Western Front. But this is just a, a bit of a, just, just a reflection of the massive, Military contribution the Indians made to the war. Uh, at the start of the, of the war, there were some 239,000 men in the Indian Regular Army. Uh, now, which that is compares a, to the British Regular Army of around 247,000, so a sizable armed force. And then uh, out of the 315 million people in the whole of the Indian subcontinent, something like a million and a half volunteers uh, come forward. It's it's a big contribution by, by any any. St- sort of measuring term isn't it yeah and let's not forget you've mentioned that they served in Gallipoli they sent out an Indian expeditionary force G to Gallipoli Uh, that went in April 1915 and uh, whilst they were held in reserve for second Krithia they took an active part in third Krithia and um, the 14th Ferizepur Sikhs lost 380 out of 514 men in an advance along Gully Ravine now we've was that the fourth of June? That, that, yeah, that's fourth of June. Christ, yeah. And we've walked along that that uh, that area, and uh, at no point have we ever really talked about that. And that's a sizable loss in that theatre. Other than me reading that lovely quote from a British officer, which and that is one of the problems that there's often not enough uh, personal experience accounts from the actual Indians as opposed to the Indian officers. Uh, one interesting thing about the Gallipoli force, which you probably will remember, is that the Muslims were removed, were, weren't sent there. No, uh, because uh, they were considered uh, it was considered dodgy to use them against the great Muslim power, which was the Turks, the Ottoman Empire. Even bigger, even bigger was somewhere else. And that, of course, is the Western Front. And they dispatched some 140,000 troops there. This was from plans originally from our favourite Douglas Haig, who uh, when he was uh, was he chief of staff in India. Uh, drew up plans to uh, employ an Indian corps on the on a putative Western Front. You know they they didn't know for certain against the Germans, and these were stamped on. But basically, they were put in a drawer. I think <laughs> marked to be opened in the event of war, and they sent the, they sent ninety thousand in the Indian corps, uh, and uh, also fifty thousand in some auxiliary uh, battalions. And they fought a lot on the Western Front. There's a the, the, there's a there's battles that they're, they're they play a crucial role in, when they race to the sea. They are often the people who are meeting the Germans head on. Yeah, uh, I think play- that's a very good point. They, they are involved right from the start. You know, they're, they're in action around Eeps uh, for the, the first Battle of Eeps, not in Eeps itself, but in the surrounding areas. And they're winning gallantry medals. They're, well, they're winning Victoria Crosses. And the first one, the first Indian to win a Victorian Cross was, and I'm not sure of the pronunciation then, but it's Kudadad Khan. He's an interesting case. He was born in 1887 in Punjab, which is now in Pakistan. That'd be Pakistan, yeah. And he joined, uh, the, when the war broke out, he volunteered, joined as a sepoy and served with 129th Duke of Connaught's own Baluchis. Uh, he became a machine gunner. And then October 14, his, 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 uh, his regiment are out in France, uh, and uh, he, uh, he basically, uh, there's a massive attack on the 30th of, uh, of October. And 
They're outnumbered five to one by account, and um, most of them are pushed back. But his machine gun team um, stick on, fighting on, and they're, they're, they're accredited with preventing the final breakthrough uh, of the Germans. Um, most of the rest of his gun team was disabled by a shell. Uh, uh, um, and um, that, sorry, there's two gun teams in all. One's disabled by a shell. And eventually, Kudadad Khan's own team, they're overrun. Um, they're, 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 they're gun, all the other machine gunners are killed. Uh, or, uh, and uh, Kudadad Khan is badly wounded, isn't he? He's very badly wounded. But uh, he manages to get back to his... To the British lines. Well, he does. He does what soldiers in this situation often do. He pretends to be dead until after the attackers have gone, and then you know, despite having serious wounds, he manages to get back to the British lines. And he's the first native-born Indian to, to get the Victoria Cross, so uh, he's awarded it. He recovered. It's happy to say, he recovers from his wound uh, and dies at, <laughs> at home in Pakistan. I'm sure he's not happy about that, but he might have been pleased at the age. He wouldn't be expecting it in 1914, would he? But he died in 1971 uh, at the age of 84. Uh, and that's, that's uh, uh, and a notable Indian hero, but one of many. This is, this is tokenism, I suppose, but this is just one of the ones we picked out. Uh, now, another one is slightly different. Um, uh, this is Indira Lal Roy, uh, and he uh, is... Um, He's, he becomes a pilot. Now, this is quite unusual, but not he's not the only one. There are others. In fact, the War Museum interviewed another one whose name I have brilliantly forgotten, so I wish I hadn't mentioned it. You are brilliant at I am brilliant at forget, mentioning things and then not remembering the, uh, the fact that they all depict linchpins. Now, presumably you've picked a flyer because of your own interest in the Royal Flying Corps at this time. I'm afraid that uh, there's someone else later on as well. I do. Yes, you go where you're interested, aren't you? He was born in Calcutta, 2nd of December 1898, so you notice how young he is. Uh, and he was uh, educated. He was educated in St. Paul's School, Kensington. Uh, and he was there when the war started. He signed up as soon as he reached military age. Military age, uh, you can tell uh, somebody... Uh, uh, April 17. Uh, commissioned July 17, uh, and he's still only, he's still, he's still not 19. Um, he's posted to number 56 squadron, and now they're flying SE5s, SE5As, and that's McCudden's squadron. You, uh, you will remember McCudden, uh, yep. who I believe you call James in. Jimmy. Jimmy Mac. Jimmy Mac. And, uh, he has a bit of an accident, uh, when he, in a crash on the 6th of December, but, um, Despite that, people are a bit worried about his health. He's then posted to forty. When you squadron. say they're a bit worried about his health, do you mean do you mean you know post traumatic stress that sort of thing? I think he was he was injured in the crash, and I, I think I, I'm not an expert on him. And I th but there are doubts about whether he was medically fit to fly. Uh, but he, nevertheless, he's posted to forty squadron on the nineteenth of June, nineteen eighteen, uh, and then in July, the first three weeks of July, uh, he's. 18 he's credited with 10 victories and uh, and uh, that 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 seems a lot now we're, we're aware and we're, we've talked before about how claims can be exaggerated yes. but he does seem to have, have been credited with with 10 victories and whatever whatever the reality of whether they actually hit the deck uh, 
that it's the same as any other counting. It's an endemic problem in the Royal Flying Corps over overclaiming, and there's no reason to suspect he's any different. Ten, ten is a lot. That makes him an ace. You'll remember that an ace, yeah. and you're always surprised. It's five. Yeah. It's five. Yeah. Um, now, now, what happens to him? Oh, well, 22nd of, of July, 1918, uh, he's killed. His plane shot down in flames over Carvin in a dogfight with a Fokker D7, uh, or more than one. Um, and, and that's, that's, he's killed. Now, um, there's the citation for his medal. I'm not sure which medal it is because I haven't looked it up. Is, are you going to read that? Yeah, it says, A very gallant and determined young officer who in 13 days accounted for nine, so not ten in his citation, enemy machines. In these several engagements, he has displayed remarkable skill and daring on more than one occasion accounting for two machines in one patrol. Now, I presume that's because the, the medal was awarded before he shot down his, his, last, uh, his last thing. But uh, as I say, all of these sort of so-called kill charts are a little bit dodgy. Now, after his death, uh, his commanding officer wrote to, to uh, his mum, and, and what did he say? He says, From the time he came to this squadron, his one aim in life was to shoot down Huns, and through his skill as a pilot and wonderful dash, he succeeded in bringing down nine enemy nine machines. Nine again, isn't that nine interesting? Again. I'm going for nine, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. For the time he was here, he had a wonderfully fine record. I'm sure he was very happy here. He was admired by all the men and officers in the squadron and was very popular in the mess. Now, that's actually a typical commanding officer's um, uh, comments about an officer in the squadron. But it's nice that he he took the time to write to his mum. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't bet on any of that being actually true in the sense that you write to people to to well to make them try to, to try and console them in in the worst time in their life. Poor yeah. old uh, poor old Roy's mum must have been in bits when she heard. I hope she didn't hear he was shot down in flames because that's one of the worst deaths you can imagine. Now, all in all, uh, so we've looked at two. Uh, uh, they won 13,000 medals, 12 uh, Victoria Crosses. And uh, by the end of the war, how many, how many had been reported killed? Because it was a lot, wasn't it? Well, there's uh, 47,700 odd Indians had been reported dead or missing. And missing is dead, isn't it? And 65,000 were wounded. Now, we've mentioned previously there's an Indian memorial uh, near Nerve Chapelle which commemorates nearly 4,700 identified casualties. And in 2018, there was a new Indian memorial, uh, which was uh, erected to recognise the contribution made by India in the Great War, and it was unveiled in Villas uh, Ghislaine, I think it's pronounced. And interestingly, that's not a Commonwealth War Graves memorial. That was actually paid for and erected by the Indian government. Uh, so they made a massive, massive contribution. Well, we, we've not, well, we mentioned Gallipoli, but they also had a huge impact on the Mesopotamian campaign, which is modern-day Iraq. Uh, they were the bulk of the forces by the end of the war. Uh, they were, had an enormous contribution in Palestine. Uh, again, they were the key forces by the end. And they also, others went to East and West uh, Africa. Uh, it's so, so important. One of the great tragedies was uh, at, at the surrender of Kut el Amara, where uh, it was bad enough for the British people who were taken prisoner, but nearly all the Indians who were taken prisoner at Kut el Amara were to die. Uh, it was a, a, a tremendous tragedy uh, that... that, that 
that resonates still, and uh, it, it, it's awful. That that's the uh, the first of our things. Well, I would add that uh, Field Marshal Claude Sir Claude Orsonley, uh, who was seeing sea of the the Indian Army from around about 1942, I think, he he's attributed with saying that the British couldn't have come through both wars, the Great War and World War Two, if they hadn't had the Indian Army. And, and, I mean, you could not argue with that sentiment. It, I, I certainly wouldn't. In fact, it, it, it's just it's just the truth. Yeah. Uh, we'd have been in awful trouble. Uh, and, and time and time again, their, uh, their courage and their, their fighting abilities and their numbers saved us. A, a combination of all three. Now, what about Africa? Well, um, uh, we're going to do less detail on this, and uh, that, that, that it, uh, which is not fair, really, but because uh, it, it's a scene of some of the great tragedies of the Great War that are unreported. And again, we're going to unreport it. So perhaps, again, this is something in future years we'll come back and to. And people often forget about the German forces in, in both East and West Africa and, and the threat that that posed at that time to what was the British Empire. And and people came from the, the recruits came from all over Africa and Nigeria, Rhodesia, as it as it was then, now South Africa. Zimbabwe, yeah, yeah. It's just it, Gold Coast, it's Ghana now, uh, Nyasaland, it's Malawi, and they're all they're all over. They're they're involved. They're chasing they're chasing uh, Volbeck, that von Volbeck. They're chasing the German commander. That uh, and and uh, of the, there's 30 million people in the African colonies of the British Empire and 55,000 served as combatants. But the tragedy for me lies in the ones used as carriers and auxiliaries. Um, and there's an estimate that 10,000 were killed or died uh, while serving. Uh, and, and I think this is massively unreported. And then, of course, there's the impact of war on the civilians. Yeah. Um, the disruption of the normal economy, the, 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 the depredations of both sides attack. Uh, not so much well attacking uh, the local communities it, it's awful so so africa well, more work needed here by us uh, but but I, uh, at least we i think have referenced the uh, the sacrifice uh, and and and, the- and unlike in some of the other theaters and we'll come on to this uh, you know they're combatant soldiers in this theater um, in some of the theaters they they're not used in a combat role and as I say, we come on to that later, particularly the Chinese, for example. You know, this these this is a real theatre of war, and these are men making a real contribution, 55,000 as combatants. And they're fighting in the various countries that made up Africa of the time. And uh, it's it should be recognised more than it is, Pete. We need it, to do something. We need that. to do something more. Now, let's turn to the West Indies. Um, now, the, the, uh, the, the, the obvious one is the British West Indies uh, Regiment, and there's uh, 15,600 men served with them, and they serve alongside the Allied forces. Uh, they, they, they're supported by, and this I know from reggae, uh, from my old punk and reggae days, uh, Marcus Garvey, who, was, uh, who founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, it's funny how words change in, in offensiveness and other words, but that's what they called it. Um, now, they were formed in 1915, and the first recruits sailed from Jamaica in October 1915, and they trained at a camp near Seaford um, in Sussex on the coast there, uh, and they have an association with that town to this day. 
Now, the, where were these coming from? They're, 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 they're the um, uh, Jamaica, two-thirds of them. But the others come from Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, Bahamas, British Honduras, Grenada, British Guiana. Uh, that's now Guiana. Uh, the Leeward Islands, St. Lucia and St. Vincent. Uh, 5,000 uh, join up. And they saw front line in Palestine and Jordan. The British West Indies Regiment served in front line against the Turkish army. But in France, Egypt and Italy, they're, they're mainly in auxiliary roles, aren't they? Uh, yeah, but despite that, you know, they still lost 185 soldiers killed or died of wounds. Uh, although 1,071 died of illness. Uh, and a further 697 were wounded. So, you know, they were used largely as non-combatants. And they were led largely by uh, white officers, but they were still an active part of the war effort. And they still received a substantial amount of racial prejudice in their actions. And, uh, and there were actually a, there was actually a mutiny in 1918. But let, let's look at the positive side. Let's, we've got a, a story of uh, it's another pilot. There's a coincidence. It's as if someone was interested in aviation. And this is William Clark. He was. He was supposed to be Britain's first black pilot. I'm not sure how they define this. Uh, he's a Sergeant William, but he's often known as Robbie. And uh, I think mind, under my rules, we should call him William, but uh, we'll see. Uh, Clark. And uh, I want to say that this work was done by Peter Devitt. He's a mate of mine uh, who, uh, who used to help me in my research when I was an aviation historian. I used the past tense wisely i think after what my agent said <laughs> <laughs> the last time you were writing on the great war aviation pete after he looked at my sales figures uh, he was a curator at the rf museum he may still well we're getting old he may have left now but he, he was very important part of that anyway uh, william uh, where was he born uh, william uh, clark well he was born in kingston jamaica on the 4th of october 1895 so again a young man and um he 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 had a solid education and he he'd learned how to maintain motor cars and he was one of the first men on the island to drive and he, his first role was as a chauffeur not bad and then in 1915 he decides to travel to Brit he volunteers to travel to Britain to pay his part in the war well he and paid his own fare now why would someone uh, he's clearly a bright young chap he's got a job why would he go thousands of miles to do that? Why? Why? I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, the British, I mean, people like Bristol, Yeah. we've talked about slavery. I mean, we haven't, but the, the, there's just recently been a lot of talk about the British involvement in slavery. Why would he come all that way? Well, there's a poet called, uh, he's a Jamaican chap, and, and it's called Sidney Moxie. And he wrote a poem, which, which is... Um, it's a difficult read, isn't it, for us? It is. I mean, it's it's called The Motherland's Call. And, and despite the horrors of slavery, many West Indians considered Britain to be the mother country and actually a lesser evil. That Certainly Sidney Moxie was concerned that slavery would be reintroduced were Germany to win the war. And and he, he, he expresses this very forcefully in this poem. Uh, it's a bit odd to our ears today, but... but I'm going to read it as, as written. It's called The Motherland's Call. Strike, brothers, strike a blow for England's sake. Brave hearts that blow shall even stronger make. When England calls, what British heart would shirk? She only calls in need for empire's work. Colonial hearts in loyalty must stir. Face danger, death face all for sake of her. They rush to aid her and for England stand. No distance chills the love 
for Motherland. Now, I found this quite a strange poem, uh, a bit over the top. Um, but uh, the thing is, I, this is this is the point of trying to look at it from a perspective of now. This is exactly what Clark does. Clark pays his own fare. Clark follows what this poem says. So here's me saying this poem's a bit over the top. But people at the time, it clearly resonated with feelings that people had. Well, let's be Not honest everyone. here. We, we looked up Sidney Moxie to see if he was white. Well, that was my suspicion. I'm still not entirely certain, but it seems that he was seems black. Seems that he was black. But uh, I'm sure that the Twitter internet will uh, correct us. Uh, well, uh, we, anyway, now Clark gets to England and, uh, um, and he, in July 15, he joins the Royal Flying Corps as an air mechanic. Um, and he goes to, as a driver, presumably about a lorry or something, to uh, an observation balloon company. And he's out in France for more than a year. He really wants to fly. And in December 16, he's accepted to, for pilot training in, in England. This is quite strange. I was say, was that unusual? Well, the, as you said, they let they let uh, Roy in. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, but he qualifies on the 26th of April, 1917. Uh, and on his documentation, it's in, and uh, the RAF Museum page that uh, Peter David puts up, uh, shows it. he's down as British, his nationality, uh, which, of course, according to our Nationalities Act and things, he is. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, anybody in, born in the British Empire was considered to be British. Uh, now, he some, does well, doesn't he? He gets promoted to sergeant. Did you ever get promoted to sergeant? No. <laughs> no. But, uh, but Clark does. Clark does very well. And uh, in 19, May 1917, he's posted to fly the RE-8 to number four. The Harry Tate. To no. number four squadron RSA at Abiel in Belgium. Now this is a core squadron, isn't it? And you know what they're doing. They're, all the all the really important work we've had this discussion before. This is more important than the aces. This is the bread and butter. This is what the RFCs for: uh, artillery observation, directing the shells direct. We're using wireless onto targets, and of course reconnaissance to locate those targets in the first bloody place. Uh, and he's doing this during the uh, the, the Battle of Messines in uh, in June 1917. Now that's a crucial role in regards to that battle it's a crucial role in any event but you know it's necessary to to save lives of men on the ground now he's also doing it in the lead up to the third battle of eeps uh, and on the 28th of july just before it starts uh him uh, clark and his observer that's second lieutenant fp blenko uh you if you want to look anything up i always say Look it up in Trevor Henshaw's book, The Sky There Battlefield. However, have you done that, Gary? Have you? Have you looked him up? What's his first name? F. F. <laughs> I'm going to call him Freddy. No, have you looked him up? No, no I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're on a wrecking mission, uh, and they're, they're RE-8, uh, which is a standard reconnaissance machine for the time, are attacked by German scouts. And this is a quote from... This is one of the only quotes we've got in this talk by people. Go, what does he say? Ro, ro, uh, William Clark. Sergeant Robbie Clark. Oh, he's so familiar. I was doing some photographs a few miles the other side when about five Hun scouts came down upon me. And before I could get away, I got a bullet through the spine. I managed to pilot the machine nearly back to the aerodrome, but had to put her down as I was too weak to fly anymore. My observer escaped without any injury. That's uh, 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 He was lucky to survive. Um, and 
Uh, he's evacuated uh, back to England and and he's uh, in hospital at Litchfield in Staffordshire. Uh, that's in November. Uh, well, of course it's in November. Uh, to, until November, sorry. Um, then he he gets better and he goes back to duty, but not as a pilot, does he? No, he goes back first as uh, into the RFC Reserve Depot and then a mechanic with number 254 Squadron. He'd always liked that. I mean, that, he'd got a mechanical bent, if you like. He had, yeah. And that was based at uh, RF Prawl Point in Devon. So he's discharged in August 1919 and he gets a, a one-off payment of £60, which I think mirrors the oh, British that's payment. A, that's a huge amount of money. It, it, funnily enough, uh, they don't treat the forces very well, but... That they, the, the, the one-off payment was quite good at, uh, at the end of the war. Um, the, tri- the, the pensions weren't. Um, he goes back to Jamaica and he, 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 seems to, he doesn't seem to go into driving. Perhaps his back was giving him jip. He works in the building trade. And what I found interesting was very active in veterans' organisations, the equivalent of the British Legion in this country. And he becomes life president of the Jamaican branch of the RAF Association. And he lives to, till April 1981. And that's that's nice. Uh, and uh, so, uh, as we said, uh, the, the, there was a, the Caribbean colonies. Uh, they've got a population of one million seven hundred thousand, and uh, twelve hundred were killed or, or, or died. Uh, Two thousand five hundred wounded. Eighty-one medals for for, uh, for bravery. Now the next bit is uh, quite hard hitting. I hope. And it's meant to be hard hitting, isn't it? And and this is not one of the British Empire's greatest minutes, is it? Or no. Ours? So we're we're going to look now at Asia and and China in particular. Um, and uh, this is this is subtitled "The Forgotten of the Forgotten," and I think it's rather apt. Um, the recruitment of Chinese labourers began in in 1916. Now that's before China entered the war. Uh, and it's because of ever escalating casualties meant that labourers were becoming a really scarce resource. And as such, I think it was Haig again makes a call for labour. Um, and uh, China uh, agrees to provide this labour on condition that they're not used in an offensive uh, military manner, that they are only used for labour. The, the, the recruiting, I mean, they're, they're, they're promised these various things. Uh, but but in actual fact, I think the recruits don't know what's happening. They seem to have been largely recruited from uh, country areas, farming areas, uh, and uh, they, they don't know what's happening. And they get, they undergo an appalling journey. Are they well treated on this journey? No, and, and actually, they start dying on the journey. Um, you know, large numbers of them. Uh, they they travel by ship across the Pacific. Now, Canada. Um, uh, wanted to uh, insisted that they they travelled across Canada in seal trades, otherwise they'd have to pay landing taxes. Now, can you imagine six days sealed in a train? You wouldn't do that to cattle. It, it, they're, they're they're really and when they get to where well, they pass through England and there's some graves uh, in Liverpool. I know because I, I saw pictures of them, and I believe I, I once saw them in real life, but I'm vague as to where I saw them now. So it's typical again. Well, they travelled by ship to Liverpool and then they got the train down to Folkestone and on to France. So you're probably right, Pete. There probably are some in Liverpool and possibly even Folkestone. We can have a look at that. Well, they live in labour camps in, in in France and Belgium. And what what work are they put on, Gary? Well, they're, they're unloading ships and trains, you know, they're laying tracks. Traditionally, that's how you think of the, the, the Chinese labour being used uh, for, for railways. And they're, and they're building roads. And, and it, it's just 
back-breaking hard work. Now, Winston Churchill, he, he reveals the naked prejudice common in British society at that time when he says, I would not even shrink from the word Chinese for the purpose of carrying out the war. These are not times when people ought in the least to be afraid of prejudices. That's uh, but anyway. The, the, it, it's it's not a, a good. Uh, it doesn't look too well. Now the, the Chinese labour corps what's f- formed, and they recruit in total one hundred and forty thousand men, of which one hundred thousand are with the British, and forty thousand with the French. Now they're paid one franc a day. That doesn't sound much, and they seem to work ten hours a day, seven days a week, uh, with with very very few holidays. Uh, now, uh, it, uh, th- th- now, well, let's restate this. What, what does the actual, you know, what does the actual contract that, that, that they sort of were recruited under? What does that say they're meant to do? It says no Chinese labourer is to be employed in any sort of military operation. He is to be engaged only in industries and agriculture in France, Algeria, or Morocco. I mean, that's quite clear. They are not to be employed in any sort of military operation. Well, when they arrive, they have their traditional cues. That's the hair thing at the back, isn't it? They're cut off, they're fingerprinted, and they're given a number. They don't have a name, they have a number. They're sort of coolie number 10. That's a simplification, but they're not referred to by name. Uh, uh, They have Chinese uh, students acting as interpreters. And and what work are they put on? I presume it's just farming and uh, helping in light industrial tasks, is it? Now, bear in mind, they work a minimum minimum 10-hour day, and their duties include digging trenches, latrines, repairing roads and railways, unloading munitions and supplies. Many of them worked in armament factories and naval shipyards or helped in the construction of the the munitions depots themselves. But they were civilians, surely? No, no, they were subjected to the same strict military discipline. But they were safe, were they? Well, no, because they're, they're, they're in danger. They're, they're working close to the front line. They're, they're in a, as much danger as front line troops in certain areas. In certain areas, yeah. Are they free to come and go? As no, they let's, like? let's talk about these camps for a second. They're basically prisoners. They're in segregated camps. They're surrounded by barbed wire fences and armed guards. And, and no fraternisation, especially not with white women. And that, that, that's the prejudices of the time. Yeah, and if there were any protests for better condition, the uh, the enforcement of the original contract, it was ruthless, ruthlessly suppressed. And, and indeed, some were killed by British troops. When four died, nine were wounded when British troops fired on them during a disturbance in December 1917. That's basically a protest, isn't it? They, yeah, they were protesting against the conditions, and so they were shot. So all go home after the armistice, do they? No, um... It, the French offered the Chinese workers the right to stay, uh, but uh, uh, we didn't. Now, bear in mind that that we don't let them go home straight. We don't. I mean, what? I was going to say, bear in mind that after the hostilities finished, they're used in inarguably some of the most dangerous works and horrible tasks because they clear the battlefields of unexploded ordnance and rebury the dead. So British troops are doing this as well, but a lot of them are, are the Chinese Labour Corps, aren't they? They get a big role in this. Yeah, and, it, and, and at the end of that, in 1920, they're all returned to China, or the survivors are. All because, the ones working for the British are. Yeah, because you know there, there are some estimates of around... 
20,000 Chinese men. I think that's overly high. Yeah, I I mean, I've also seen 10,000, and they died from, you know, all sorts of reasons The, the, the shelling from mines, but also from poor treatment and the flu pandemic. Uh, let's not forget that, you know, in 1918-19, there were 50 million died around the world. That affected them just as much. I, I think it'd be best to say we don't know how many died, but it was far too many. Uh, I think I would go best. Well, what we do know is that uh, 15 of them were sentenced to death for murder during the war. So, you know, we, we know some of them died. Now, I've been to um, a number of cemeteries and uh, you, you do see the Chinese labour workers in, in certain cemeteries around the Western Front. You do, yeah, I've seen um, them, yeah. And, uh, and, and in fact, you mentioned some of them uh, are buried here. Um, there are thousands of war memorials to the British dead, but until really very recently, there was none to the Chinese Labour Corps. And even then, the one they put up, I think it's in Newham, and I'm not sure whether it's been opened or not. It was going to be opened in 2017-18. I'm, I'm not sure what's happened. And like but, the Indian government, it was fi- it was found funded by the Chinese community. You know, it wasn't funded by us. Now, uh, we've got a quote from Chen Duxiu, uh, who's a founder of the Chinese Communist Party, and he, he he's a a major leader in the development of the cultural basis of the revolution in China. Now, I I like this quote because he said, while the sun does not set on the British Empire, neither does it set on Chinese workers abroad. And that's that's so true about that. It is. I mean, uh, uh, I I think this is a a terrible story. And uh, I think the British Empire comes out of this with no credit whatsoever. Um, I think it's merciless exploitation, uh, and I mean merciless, and I mean exploitation. And bear in mind, until much later, China wasn't at war with anybody. I mean, I think they joined in 17, um, uh, late 1917, I think. But but at this point, you know, when, when the recruitment's taking place, they're not at war. Now, the next country we're going to look at is America. And uh, here, this is too big a story. So we're going to do what we normally do, which is narrow the focus so people can get a more detailed view of one small bit of a big, massive story. There's whole books written about this. uh, And uh, we're going to use the the 369th Regiment. They were originally the 15th New York Regiment. And they're the first African-American recruited regiment to serve on the Western Front. Now... Uh, was however you want to look at it, racial discrimination, outright segregation, uh, it's endemic in American society uh, at, at the time of the Great War. Uh, but nevertheless, thousands of African-American citizens volunteered or, or were called up. Um, and a lot of them hoped that their efforts for the mother country, as such as it was, would be rewarded after the war. Um, um hopefully reducing the prejudice within that society. I don't know, we won't be talking about that, but what we'll look at is the wartime thing. Um, their officers were mostly white, but but, but African-Americans were commissioned. Um, and it seemed to be a bit of a step forward. We'll see what happens to that. But there are other problems, aren't there? That, that, because there's vicious, vicious race riots in America in the summer of 1917. Uh, and the, the the New Yorkers of the uh, 369th Regiment uh, get a lot of it. Uh, they're in a, a, a training camp at Camp Wadsworth. That's in South Carolina, I think. And 
and and they encounter a lot of troubles with 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 overt racism within the communities they're living in. Uh, people being attacked. It's just terrible. Now, when they're sent to France, they're, they're, they're going to be a non-combatant uh, force. Uh, they're going to be a labor battalion uh, because th- there are claims within the American forces that white American soldiers wouldn't serve w- with black uh, American soldiers. But somebody has got their eye on them. Who would that somebody be? Well, that would be the French because, A, they're desperate for more men, but they, they've been very successful in using African colonial infantry and, and they had a, a much greater appreciation of the potential military merits of the 369th Regiment. So in May 18, they transferred to serve uh, first in the French 16th Division, uh, who they fight alongside in the Second Battle of the Marne, and then the 161st uh, French Division. Or 161st. Yes, 161st. Division. Now, their colonel, Colonel William Hayward, he, he was he was the man in charge of 369th Regiment, um, and he's very proud of his men. But I I find that the quote that follows is in some to the modern ear, the quote that follows is as offensive as any racism you can imagine. And but he means well, but the the spirit of his time and his society definitely shows through, doesn't it? Have a listen to this, Gary. You're going to read it, are you? Colonel William Hayward. The French officers say they are entirely different from their own African troops and the Indian troops of the British, who are so excitable under shellfire. Of course, I've explained that my boys are public schoolboys, no caste prejudice, accustomed to the terrible noises of the subway, elevators and street traffic of New York City, which would drive any desert man or Himalaya mountaineer mad, and are all Christians. Also, that while the more ignorant ones might not like to have a black cat hanging around for fear it would turn into a fish or something, they had no delusions about the Bosch shells coming from any heathen gods. They know the damned child-killing Germans are firing at them with pyrocellulose and they know how the breach mechanism works. I've learned more about the military game at at least the fighting of this war, since I've been here with the French than I learned in all the years as drummer boy, private, sergeant, captain, major and colonel, 2nd Nebraska Infantry, Spanish War Manoeuvres, officer school, etc, etc. And another thing, I believe I know more about Negro soldiers and how to handle them, especially the problem of Negro and white officers, than any other man living today. Of course, the other regiment I commanded for three years was a white regiment, so I had a lot to learn. But I've learned it, and I wouldn't trade back now. So he is a well-meaning man and commander. He's proud of his men, but the the prejudices are obvious. By the way, when he refers to public school, he doesn't mean public in the English sense. He no. just means a state school. State school, yeah. Um, and uh, and it, it it is interesting just how racist that quote is but how well-meaning he is. And funnily enough, you often find similar things said at the same time about, by officers in the Indian Army, British officers serving in the Indian Army. They're, they're very fond of them, and they think they're great, but some of the things they say uh, would make you 
would make you uh, shiver now. Now, uh, they're going to action 26th of September. They're part of Guru, uh, General Guru from Gallipoli. One-armed yep. Guru, I think he was called then. Yep. Uh, the 369th are attacking across the River Dormois, uh, which is a tribute to the Aisne. Uh, and they're, 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 uh, they're, 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 it runs down the west side of the Argonne. Now, who's fighting in the Argonne on that day? Uh, well, Pershing and the First Army. Yeah, that's right. Pershing does reach out a gesture to the 369th, but it's not a gesture that's particularly appreciated. What What is his gesture? He removes all the remaining African-American officers. He wants an all-white officer unit. So the prejudices are still very deep. Even though they're not under American command, he's reached out to do that. Uh, uh, I don't know much about the detail of that decision, and perhaps other people will comment on it, but it looks bad to me, very bad. Uh, now, the second and third battalions of the regiment are used in the initial assault. They have quite a bit of success. Um, as a, the, the barrage is so great. Uh, uh, the, the barrage really hammers it. And this is Sergeant Hannibal Davis of uh, 1st 369 Regiment. And what does uh, Hannibal say? Where there had been a trench seven feet or more deep, there now existed hardly an impression in the earth. Where there had been an impassable barrier of barbed wire, snarled as only the Germans and the devil know how to arrange it, there was now only a few occasional strands of wire protruding or laying on the ground here and there. Where there had been a grove of trees, now only a few gaunt seared spars pointed heavenward. Wow. Uh, so they're going well, but then they're, they're approaching the Dormois itself, the River Dormois. The 3rd, 369th, that's the 3rd Battalion, 369th, uh, fact, they run into a bit of a swamp area. There's German machine guns. By this time, remember, they're very, in, Germans are heavily dependent on machine gun teams. And Captain Han, Hamilton Fish, he's commanding K Company, he sent a message back to the Colonel, and he selects Private Elmer McCowan uh, for this dangerous mission. Now, this, this, this story, when I first read it, it struck me. It struck me as unbelievable. But there's a Danui monk because we've got another quote that backs up. So this is Private Elmer McGowan. This is almost surrealistically funny at times. The captain asked me to carry dispatches. The Germans pumped machine gun bullets at me all the way, but I made the trip and back safely. Then I was sent out again. As I started with the message, the captain yelled to bring him back a can of coffee. He was joking, but I didn't know it at the time. Being a foot messenger, I had some time ducking those German bullets. Those bullets seemed very sociable, but I didn't care to meet up with them. So I kept right on travelling on high gear. None touched my skin, though some skinned pretty close. On the way back, it seemed the whole war was turned on me. One bullet passed through my trousers and it made me hop, step and jump pretty lively. I saw a shell hole six feet deep. Take it from me, I dented another six feet when I plunged into it hard. In my fist, I held the captain's can of coffee. When I climbed out of the shell hole and started running again, a bullet clipped a hole in the can and the coffee started to spill. But I turned round, stopped a second, looked the Kaiser in the face and held up the can of coffee with my finger plugging up the hole to show the Germans they were fooled. Just then, another bullet hit the can and another finger had to act as a stopgap. It must have been good luck that saved my life, because bullets were picking at my clothes, and so many hit the can, that at the end all my fingers were hugging it to keep the coffee in. I jumped into shell holes, wriggled along the ground, and got back safely. And what do you think? 
when I got back into our own trenches, I stumbled and spilled the coffee. Now, that story is frankly unbelievable, and I was dubious in the extreme about it. It was funny. It was it was brave. The courage of that man is undeniable. Uh, but we have another plan, because Lieutenant George Miller uh, has something to say about uh, Private McGowan's court, McGowan's court conduct. What does, what does uh, Miller say? Lieutenant George Miller. When that soldier came back with a coffee, his clothes were riddled with bullets. Yet half an hour later, he went back into no man's land and brought back a number of wounded until he was badly gassed. Even then, he refused to go to the rear and went out again for a wounded soldier. All this under fire. That's the reason he got the Distinguished Service Cross. And uh, it's difficult not to look at good old Private Elmer McGowan. It's a bit of a... Just an example, a sort of parable for, for, for how the 369th Regiment, that all those willing soldiers are treated by the American establishment. And uh, I wonder if when they got back to England, they found that prejudice had all disappeared and there was no more prejudice in the 1920s in American society. You think that's what happened? I think that's highly likely, Pete, don't you? Yes, yes. Right, no, well... It's not just the black Americans, though, is it? We're going to concentrate now on the, the black British. Well, again, and, and uh, there's no two ways about it. And, and when you look at history, you can't change things just because you want it. You can't change it one way and you can't change it another. You have to look at society as it was. And um, was black British society, there were some 10,000 black Britons in established communities uh, in London, Liverpool, This Cardiff, is at the start of the war. At the start of the war, yeah. There was racial prejudice in England, uh, in Britain at the time. There, there's no two ways about it. Many of them volunteered, but they were often, often rejected. Um, uh, and and you, this, we mentioned this earlier. What, what did we mention earlier? Well, there's a, the British Nationality and Status of Aliens Act, 1914. You know, nice catchy title. Yeah, now, lovely. that defined subjects throughout the British Empire as natural-born British subjects. Now, unfortunately, this was entirely contradicted by military law, which classed non-whites as aliens, whose recruitment was to be strictly limited and only in the proportion of one alien to every 50 British subjects. Now, that's interesting because it's using the word British subject. And the Act says that Anyone born in the empire is a British subject. Yeah, that's not what happens. It's not what happens now, by the way, either. Uh, um, uh, they're also barred from being officers, aren't they? And that's relevant to something else. Recruitment's pretty haphazard, and uh, and you know what? When the recruits present themselves, it, it depends who they present themselves to and how they're treated. So there, there's as many stories almost as there are recruits. Some are welcomed and treated well. Others, others are are well, not. Britain was. An openly racist society. It was. It There's was. no arguing about that. And there were numerous race riots at times, normally triggered by who would trigger? Who Who today creates problems in communities? Uh, well, should we, what phrase should we use? The gutter press, I think, is how we'd describe them. What newspaper do you read? The gutter press is how <laughs> we would describe them, Pete. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a case. Let's look at this case. And, and you know... It's obvious what case we're going to use. It's a bloody cliché. But on the other hand, it, it's a cliché because it's an interesting one. And that's Walter Tull. Um, he wasn't a saint and, and shouldn't be treated as one. No, no human being should be. Let, let's treat him just as a bloke who's caught up in the war. Born in Folkestone, 28th of April, 1888. His dad was a carpenter. 
from Barbados who'd moved to Folkestone and married a local woman. Uh, he's one of six children, uh, but by the age of nine, he'd lost both parents and, and uh, was in a, an orphanage in Bethnal Green. But he was a good footballer. And 1908, he's a promising amateur footballer. He's playing for Clapton, Clapton FC. Uh, and they won the FA Amateur Cup and the London Senior Cup. Um, and he was mentioned a football star. Um, and he was spotted by Spurs and signed for them in 1909. He wasn't quite, he wasn't the first British black professional. Uh, there'd been a goalkeeper play for Darlington and Preston North End, uh, Arthur Walton. But he was the first black outfield player and he was bloody good. The Daily Chronicle described him as very good indeed with a class superior to that shown by most of his colleagues. And he was often, but he was also referred to, how was he referred to in other newspaper reports? Well, as West Indian or, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it because it's historically accurate. He was described as darky. Not nice. Uh, but he still seems to have a bright future. Uh, then he plays uh, Tottenham against Bristol City. And he, he, he is really viciously racially abused. And what does the reporter say? A section of the spectators made a cowardly attack on him. Let me tell those Bristol hooligans that Tull is so clean in his mind and method as to be a model for all white men who play football, whether they be amateur or professional. In point of ability, if not actual achievement, Tull was the best forward on the field. Now, the next bit doesn't reflect well on, on Spurs, but let's be honest, this isn't Spurs of today. Even you would be fair. This is Spurs then, and even Arsenal may have been afflicted by racial prejudice then. He played seven games, but there was then dropped. They didn't seem to want to stand by him in the face of racial, racial abuse, did they? In fact, what did they do? Well, they sold him to Northampton Town. They got a good fee for him. He, he It's described as a heavy transfer fee, but they didn't stand by him during this controversy and and he was sold the following season and and it's just you know he was a really good player and when he gets to Northampton he flourishes he plays 110 first team games in midfield for Northampton and he was going to be transferred in a big move to Glasgow Rangers uh, but that then the war comes that stops all that he's the first Northampton player to sign up and he joins the 17th battalion, that's apparently a footballer's battalion, of the Middlesex Regiment. I, I, I yeah, it was known up. as 1st Football Battalion. Not to me, it's not. <laughs> okay. And in November, he goes to France. 1915, November 1915. He's got leadership skills, hasn't he? Uh, unlike you, when you were in the army. No, and if you think about it, you know, playing in a football team, he, he will have develop those leadership skills as part of, of his trade, if you pardon the expression. And he he is recognised by the army. He he takes part in July 1916, the he's major Somme offensive, he? as a sergeant. Wow. Um, now, he survives the Somme experience. And uh, unfortunately, in December 1916, he develops trench fever and he was sent home to England. He's in hospital back in England. Uh, it sounds like more than trench fever to me. Um, a lot of this is other people's research and I can't vouch for it. It's weird. His officers recommend him for officers training school at Gales. Now, this shouldn't be happening. Uh, it should be happening. But at the, ti- at well, the let's, time... Let's, let's rethink about what military law said. Now, at the time, it said all Negroes and persons of colour are excluded from exercising actual command. 
Um, so it, it, was, so it, was it was just banned. It was just and yet thought his to be senior wrong. Senior officers recommend it. So the idea is that you can't have black officers leading white troops into action. That's what this is about, isn't it? It is. Now those senior officers must have known that when they made the, rec- the recommendation, they will have known the position of military law. So there's a certain amount of risk to them in making that recommendation as well. So he, he gets through uh, Officer Training Corps and he's commissioned as a second lieutenant in May 1917. Um, it, at the time, the, the only British-born black officer in the army, they say. I'm not sure about that, but that's, he must have been fairly exceptional. Uh, 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 well, not exceptional. He must have been a good officer. I, I think exceptional's going too far. Uh, and he, he does well. In, he's in Italy. He's uh, recommended for gallantry and coolness at the Battle of the Piave. Uh, um, and he's coming to the end of the war. Uh, we're, we're galloping through this now, but uh, he doesn't get there. He's in the Second Battle of the Somme. He's recalled to, to, to his battalion, recalled to England, to France rather, during the German offensives, and is killed in an intense machine gun fire. And it said his men attempted to rest, you know, to reclaim his body to rescue him. Um, and he dies aged 29 on March 25th, 1918. So that's that's the spring offensives. His body was never found. Um, now, uh, Toll's commanding officer, he, he, he broke, broke his news to Toll's brother, and he says this. How popular he was throughout the battalion. He was brave and conscientious. The battalion and company have lost a faithful officer, and personally, I have lost a friend. And again, you'd expect... Nothing else written to a family member at this time of great sorrow. But it, it is a, a nice uh, statement. Uh, it, it reads personally to me. Yes. Um, now, he, he is commemorated on Base 7, uh, the uh, Aris Memorial, which you know, commemorates 34,785 soldiers who had no known grave. But there are other memorials to him around the country, uh, particularly around the areas he's associated with. So, for example, there's a statue in Folkestone. Um, and, and as you say... It is, it is a bit of a cliche, but he was a uh, uh, a very brave man. Brave young lad, like so many were. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's become a, a sort of, well, a symbol. Uh, and there's lots of memorials now to, to Walter Tull. And, there are. And uh, he is very well remembered. And, and long may it be so. Uh, and... and what we've tried to do here is just to, to show some of the stories that lie behind the enormous, enormous contribution uh, of, of, of communities that are so often forgotten in the Great War. And uh, as I said, this is part of our... Uh, uh, it's our contribution to Black History uh, Month. Uh, October is Black History Month, and we've tried to do this to, to reflect that. Uh and it, it, to me, I've found it uh, both uh, interesting and somewhat chastening at times. Not a lot of humour in this episode, eh, Gary? No, but rightly so. And I think, you know, one of the things I've, I've taken away is I'm going to do a little bit more uh, looking into these things now. I think, you know, whilst uh, Walter Tull is probably the most famous, he wouldn't be the only black soldier serving at that time. And I'm going to see what I can find black about officer. some of the others. No, but I'm saying I'm going to look at some of the other black soldiers that served at that time. Good for you, Gary. I look forward to the results of your researches. And, Don't uh, hold your breath, Pete. Oh, no. <laughs> <coughs> Cheers. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?